Prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Join me in a word of prayer. Our God and our King, we thank you again that you are a God who speaks. You're a God who speaks to us, your people. You're a God who speaks to us, your people, through your word and by the power of your spirit. So we cry out to you today for mercy and for grace, for clarity and for hope. We pray that you take your word, convict us of our sin, draw us near to grace and draw us afresh into your presence. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Friends, if you're a human being, at some point in your life, you will need to try to make sense of the pain and the suffering that you're going through. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're young or whether you're old, at some point in your life, you will need to learn to make sense of pain and suffering because to suffer is to be human. And friends, one of the key ways that we make sense of the pain and the suffering in our lives is the sense in our hearts that there's some kind of a reason bigger than ourselves in that pain and in that suffering, even though we can't see it and can't know it in the moment. Tim Keller, a famous pastor from New York City who has lived through two bouts of cancer, he once said this, many people have to admit that most of what they really needed for success in life came to them through their most difficult and painful experiences. You know, we want to grow, we want to be full human beings, we want to be useful, we want to be kind of people that uh, other people can turn to for help. We want to be successful in the broad sense of that word. We want to be good human beings. And a lot of times, the only way that we can get to that place of being a useful human being, one that blesses others, is to go through pain and suffering is to work through difficult seasons of our lives. And when we do so in the right way, God forms us and God makes us into the kind of person that is useful, not just to him, but to others. Now, Jonah chapter 2 shows us Jonah literally at the darkest point in his life. He's here swallowed up by a great fish and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. You know the story from last week. He was running away from God. God sends a storm. He gets thrown into the sea and he's saved from drowning by being swallowed up by this fish. So this fish represents rescue. God has rescued Jonah from drowning through this fish. But at this point in time, Jonah has no idea whether or not he will survive this fish. Yes, he's saved from drowning. But could he be digested in the belly of the fish? Could this be, as one commentator puts it, Jonah's watery tomb? Could this be his living coffin? Jonah had to come face to face with his death, the prospect of his death in the belly of the fish. Look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. Although it says in verse 1 that he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah 2, verse 2 shows Jonah praying and saying that he's in the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol in the original literally means the pit, and it refers to the place of the dead. So here is Jonah in the belly of the fish, 
And he's crying out to God saying literally that he's in the belly of death. Jonah in the belly of the fish is coming face to face with the prospect of his own death. He's struggling with God through the pains and the sorrows and the difficulties in his heart. And through that struggle, God meets him, God changes him, and God brings him back on mission. Now two qualifiers. Number one, you'll see that Jonah isn't completely changed. God has to deal with his heart again in Jonah chapter 4. But that is the reality of the Christian life. We are not changed in an instant. God comes into our lives over and over and over again. So although we don't see him completely changed because there's still further work to be done in Jonah chapter 4, that does not downplay what God is doing in his heart here in Jonah chapter 2. So that's one first qualifier. The second qualifier is this. Most of you here are wondering about the fish. A few, a lot of ink has been spilled about the fish. Some of you are wondering, what kind of fish is it? Is it a whale? Well, the word used here in the original Hebrew uh, is broad enough to mean whale uh, if you so desire, although the text doesn't really say. Some others of you are wondering, can this really happen? Is it really scientifically possible for someone to be swallowed up by a great fish, live through that, and three days later be vomited out on dry land? Is this scientifically possible? I mean, if he gets swallowed into the fish, wouldn't he be crushed in the larynx? Wouldn't he be digested by the juices? Is this scientifically possible? Or is this fable? Is this metaphor? A couple of things to say there. Jesus in Matthew 12 looks back at this occasion and he considers it historical. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will I be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus himself considers this to be metaphorical. But the second point that we need to note is this. If you look carefully at the text, you'll see that this is not a natural occurrence. God had to appoint this great fish not just to swallow Jonah, but to keep Jonah for the three days and three nights. Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish. And God had to speak to the fish for him to regurgitate Jonah onto dry land in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So if you're wondering whether this is scientifically possible, it's not. It's not scientifically possible. It's not natural. It's not something you and I can try at home. So please don't try this at home. It's not something that we can do. It's not something that we can reproduce. Right here in the text, we're told that this is supernatural. We're told that this is miraculous. We're told that this is God bending the laws of nature in order to go after his prophet to rescue him and to change him. Now friends, some of you still say, but this is impossible. It's impossible only if you think that all that there is in this world and in this universe is the material. But friends, even that is an assumption. For those of us who have encountered the true and living God, we know that he is a God who is able to bend the very laws of nature to accomplish his purpose. So if you're interested in the fish, yes, it's historical, but no, it's not scientifically possible. It's supernatural. It's something that God did to rescue 
his prophet and to change his prophet. It's something supernatural. Actually, as a good Jew, my only interest in the fish is whether or not it's fresh and whether or not we can steam it with sour plum, salted vegetables, and ginger. But back to the sermon. So here is Jonah in the belly of the fish. And what does he do in the belly of the fish? This runaway prophet begins to pray and to engage with his God in the belly of the fish. Now read Jonah and you'll notice that although he's a prophet of God, although he's a Hebrew, a well-educated religious man, this is the first time in the entire book that he's actually talking to God, that he's actually praying. The sailors have prayed, the mariners have prayed, and they've urged him to pray, but this is the first time that he's praying to God. And he's coming to God in his pain and in his sorrow, and he's engaging with God in a way that changes him. And in so doing, it gives you and me a model for how we can engage with God in the dark places of our lives. A couple of things that Jonah does. He recognizes, he agonizes, he revises, and he eulogizes. So four points. Recognize, agonize, revise, and eulogize. Come with me to verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried, and you heard. Jonah's first port of call in prayer was to recognize the God that he was praying to. I called to the Lord. He answered me. I cried. You heard. There's an allusion here to Exodus chapter 2. When the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, the Bible says that they cried out to the Lord and he answered them and he acted on their behalf. The first part of call in prayer, as you're bringing your sorrows to God, as you're processing your sorrows before Almighty God, is to recognize the God that you are praying to. He is the God who answers. He is the God who acts on your behalf. As you call out to Him, He answers and He acts. Jonah reminds himself, he recognizes once again, although he's a runaway prophet, although he's a rebel against God, God does not change. He's still the same God who hears his calls and who answers his calls for mercy. But the second thing that Jonah does is that he also recognizes what God does. Not just who he is, but what God does. He recognizes that God is not distant from him in his pain and in his difficulty. In fact, God is sovereign and in full control of everything that had happened to him. If you look at chapter 1, it was the sailors who had cast Jonah into the sea. But look at verse 3. Jonah says to God, you cast me into the deep. It's your waves and your billows that passed over me. And in verse 3, Jonah is saying, all of this pain, all of this difficulty, all that I'm wrestling with, all that I'm struggling with, it comes from the hand of God. Yes, it was the sailors that threw me into the sea. But underneath all of this, I see the sovereign hand of God behind my pains and behind my difficulties. A few years ago, just before Cindy and I with the two girls were going to Australia, uh, our youngest one was diagnosed with epilepsy. We were preparing to move. I was holding her in my arms. Suddenly she went stiff, her lips turned blue, she stopped breathing, we had to rush her to the hospital. And that began for us 
many years of pain as we had to deal with the epilepsy. She would just get seizures every so often. And this was just two months before we had to go to Australia for a year and a half for theological studies and for Cindy's uh, medical fellowship. And I remember during that time how painful it was. But one of the things that held us, you'd be surprised to know, is to believe and to know that even this painful tragedy, even this sickness, was a gift from God. And over the years, we did not understand why God sent it, but it has shaped us in a certain way. And friends, whatever pain and whatever difficulty you're going through right now, whatever it is, you need to know that God is sovereign in allowing it, in sending it. It's Him. It's Him who is sovereignly behind and underneath even the most painful and difficult things that you're going through. And it's Him. And it's Him who hears you when you call to Him. And it's Him who answers you. So no matter what difficulty or pain you find yourself in, friends, you need to recognize, first and foremost, that God has a plan and a reason for sending that into your life, even though you cannot see it, even though you cannot figure it out with your own logical mind. In your sorrow, in your pain, in your darkness, you need to recognize who He is and what He does. If you belong to God through Jesus Christ, He's for you. But more than that, if you belong to God through Jesus Christ, He's forming you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Recognize who God is and what He has done. And this is what Jonah does. Now, some of us think if God is sovereign and in control of my pain, then I should be unemotional and stoic. I should just be like a rock. God is in control anyway. But contrary to popular opinion, the opposite is true. It's precisely because God is in full control. It's precisely because God is sovereign that he creates that safe place for you to come before him with the emotions that are welling up in your heart. You see, Jonah recognizes the sovereignty of God. Jonah recognizes the character of God. And that moves him to lament before God, to agonize before him honestly about the situation that he finds himself in. Look at Jonah chapter 2 verse 4. Jonah says this, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah is saying to his God, Lord, you have abandoned me. I feel abandoned by you in this situation. He knows God is sovereign. He knows God answers him when he calls, but yet he comes before God with honesty and he says to God, God, you've abandoned me. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. You see, friend, in ancient times, they believed that the highest mountains began, their feet were at the very bottom of the deepest oceans. You see what Jonah is saying here? He's crying out to God and he's saying, I'm sinking. I'm sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the deep, God. And you're not doing anything. I'm cut off from you. I'm cut off from anyone and anything that matters to me, God. It feels completely hopeless. 
It feels like no one can help me and no one even wants to help me. I'm sinking, Lord, deeper and deeper and deeper into the abyss. Help, help. Look at verse six. Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. These bars probably refer to the gates of Sheol, the gates of the place of the dead. Jonah is saying, I'm going to hell. And it looks like the gates of hell will prevail over me and I will be shut in the place of the dead forever. Jonah recognizes the sovereignty of God, friends. He knows that this is a God that you call out to and he answers. But this doesn't lead him to stoicism. This doesn't lead him to be unemotional. In fact, friends, it creates a safe place for him to be as emotional and as real and as honest that he can be. He says to God, Lord, you've abandoned me. He says to God, I'm sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. He says to God, I'm going to hell and you're shutting me in hell. My friends, whether or not these things really happen, Jonah felt that they were real. The emotions were real. And therefore it felt real. And he could bring these prayers to God. Friends, these are the raw, unadulterated, and honest emotional expressions of a prophet of God. And this rawness and honesty is meant to shock us. 19th century Scottish minister Hugh Martin said that Jonah's descriptions become so particular as to fill us with horror. You're supposed to recoil. How can a religious man, a man of God, say these things about God and say these things about his destiny? How can he do that? But friends, God is opening a door for us here to show us We don't need to park our emotions outside just because we joined a Presbyterian church. We are emotional beings. And God enables us to process our raw, unadulterated emotions before Him because He is sovereign and because He is good. He wants us in our pain And in our despair, not to pretend, but to bring that pain and to bring that despair to him. Your family may be afraid to hear your honest, unadulterated and raw thoughts. Your friends may be too. But God is not afraid to hear you at your worst. God wants to hear you at your worst. God wants you to agonize before him. Because that is the safest place in the world for you to do that. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he points out that out of the 150 Psalms, now the Psalms are the songbooks of Israel, right? They are the song lists that Israel sings to Almighty God. And Walter Brueggemann points out that out of these 150 Psalms, one third of them are Psalms of laments, Complaints and protest. Can you imagine, you know, Yen has put together a nice song list. How many songs? About 100 or so? 80 songs or so? And what if I were to tell you that one third of that song list is made up of complaints? It's complaining before Almighty God. I think it would probably empty out most of the church. But the Songbook of Israel, out of 150 songs, 
One third of them are complaints, laments, protests. Other scholars tell us that this is the language of disorientation. Now, what does he mean? He says God is giving us the language for us to use in times of pain and in times of suffering. He's giving us the categories. He's giving us the lexicon. He's giving us the vocabulary to engage our emotions before Him in times of great pain and great suffering. He says this, Walter Brueggemann. This is so that we neither experience great guilt on the one hand and great denial on the other. Great guilt because as we think about the pain and suffering in our lives, we think this is all my fault. Well, sometimes it's your fault. But the Psalms open for us a window into the reality of the brokenness of this world, the sinfulness of other people, and their effect on you. God doesn't just see you as sinner, my friends. God also sees you as a sufferer. The language of lament prevents us from experiencing great guilt as if everything is my fault. But on the other hand, it also prevents us from experiencing great denial, pretending that everything is okay when it's not. God doesn't want you to fake it till you make it. God wants you to be real before Him. God wants you to bring your laments and your pains before Him. He's given us one third of the Psalms to give us the language and the lexicon to bring this pain and to process it before Almighty God. And that is what Jonah is doing, friends, in this dark place. He's recognizing God, but he's also agonizing. He's bringing these emotions before him. And in so doing, God is saying to each and every person here who goes through difficulty, who goes through pain, who goes through suffering, which means that's you. That's you. He wants to hear you. He wants to hear your heart. You don't have to experience great guilt as if this is all your fault. Even if it's your fault, the psalmist brings that to God. And you don't have to experience great denial. Because God gives you the language of lament. The language of complaint. You can come before Him. And you can agonize in safety. But more than just agonize, Jonah also revises things that he knows about God as he's agonizing. Do you notice that even in his agony, Jonah points out that there are glimmers of hope in the despair that he's experiencing. Look at verse 7. Jonah says this, When my life was fainting away, I remembered. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's as I'm agonizing, and I remember and revise in my mind and in my heart who you are. And my prayer goes to you into your holy temple. I put your finger there as he takes note. Take note of that word, holy temple. It's going to be significant. And in verse 4, he says, I am driven away. Yet, that's a powerful yet. I shall again look upon your holy temple. Here I am in the belly of the fish. I don't know if I'll deserve this. I don't know whether I'll survive this. But I know that I will be in the temple of a Jerusalem again, worshipping you. In the midst of his agony, 
He's revising the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And he's recognizing that there are glimmers of hope. Even in the darkest situation that he finds himself in. And then look at verse 6. He says, I went down. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. You brought my life up from Sheol. From the place of the dead. See, friends, in the valley of the fish, as he recognizes and agonizes, Jonah also revises. He remembers the Lord. He's revising what God has done for his people. And he's highlighting for us twice in verses 4 and 7 that God is the one who gives his sinful, rebellious people the holy temple. Now, what is the holy temple? A bit of history. Israel has sinned against God. They're a sinful people. God cannot dwell among them because if he does in his holiness, they will be obliterated. They will be burnt up. So God being gracious, first gives to them the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple that they build in Jerusalem. And the place of the temple is the place of meeting. That's where God meets with his people. That's where he hears their prayers. That's where he can dwell with them. Now, what is it about the tabernacle or the temple that enables the people to dwell in the presence of a holy, almighty God? Well, the temple is also the place for sacrifice. In the temple, lambs and goats and bulls were put to death, were killed as a picture for us that sin must be punished by death. So it's very clear in the temple, sin must be punished by death. That's how serious our sin and rebellion against Almighty God is. It's not to be trifled with. Yet at the same time, in the temple, with the picture of the sacrifice, God is showing us that there is a way for sins to be forgiven, to be made, to be atoned for through not your death, but the death of another. So these sacrifices were a picture that God accepts the sacrifice of another in your place so that you can be forgiven, you can be sanctified, you can be made holy, and you can dwell in His presence. And friends, all of that is a gift of His grace. All of that is undeserved. So as Jonah is agonizing, he's also revising, remembering in his mind the holy temple in Jerusalem. What's he remembering, friends? He's remembering the grace of God. He's remembering how gracious God is. That even though he deserves to be in the belly of the fish, even though he deserves this pain and this suffering, God is gracious. And God can atone for his sins through the death of another. He's remembering the grace of God, even in his agony. Is revising in his mind. And that's why in verse 6 he can say, even though I went down into the pit of death, may God can bring me up. If God, who is not obliged to dwell among a holy people, will go to the extent of giving us the temple to do so, surely now in, in my sinking and in my pain, this is the same God who will be gracious to me and he will bring me up. Even though I'm going down and down and down. And friends, as Jonah remembered the Lord, so that you and I need to remember the Lord.
As Jonah revised the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in his pain and in his suffering, so do you and I need to revise his gracious deeds in our own lives. How? Well, you can do what Jonah did. You can do what Jonah did. Now, did you realize that this is quite a poetic prayer that he puts together in the belly of the fish? So much so that some liberal scholars seem to think that it it can't have happened. He couldn't have been uh, an author of such beautiful prose, such beautiful poetry in the belly of the fish. I beg to defer. You see, if you read the Psalms that we just mentioned a while ago, and you look up Psalm 3 verse 4, Psalm 120 verse 1, Psalm 118 verse 5, Psalm 88 verse 6 to 7, so Psalm 34, Psalm 120, Psalm 118, Psalm 188, I can give that to you later as a reference if you want, you'll see that the language of Jonah is actually the language of the Psalms. So what was Jonah doing? Jonah was praying his Bible. He did not have the Bible with him in the belly of the fish, but the Bible was in him in the belly of the fish. You see, he was a religious man. And he had made the Psalms, not just something he read, he had made the language of the Psalms, the language of lament, and all the other things that are there in the Psalms, a part of who he was. He had read the Psalms, recited the Psalms, memorized the Psalms, sang the Psalms, and made the Psalms his own, so that in the hour of need and the hour of sorrow, he doesn't need to open a Bible because it's there right inside of him. He has the language, he has the lexicon, he has the categories to cry out to God in a way that God wants him to cry out to God. He had immersed himself in the Psalms so that in the hour of need, he could draw down on that investment. Friends, do you immerse yourself in the Psalms? It's a great gift that God has given to us. 150 beautiful words of poetry that enable us to engage with God at the highest points in our lives and at the lowest. Do you read the Psalms, friends? Do you memorize the Psalms? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Not so the wicked. They are like shaft that the wind drives away. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think I missed out one or two verses there. Are you making a habit of taking the Psalms and making it a part of you? Don't wait until you're in the belly of the fish. That will be too late. Make an investment right now. It's not to give you an additional thing to do just so you feel very good about yourself or you're very religious. This is life and death, friends. Because you will face pain and suffering in your life. And you will need the resources that God has given you to cling to God in that pain and in that suffering. If you haven't made a habit of knowing the Psalms, of imbibing the Psalms, even singing the Psalms, don't wait. Start today. 
the two resources that I would recommend to you, actually three. Number one is the Psalms themselves. So open it, read it, make it your own. Pray, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners. Lord, I come before you and I recognize that you bless those who are righteous, those who walk before you, those who are not deceitful, those who are not suspicious, those who do not hide in the darkness and do suspicious things. Lord, you bless the righteous and I want to be a righteous man. Pray the Psalms, turn the words of the Psalms into prayer. So number one, go to the Psalms, read the Psalms, know the Psalms, pray the Psalms. But number two, if you need more help in understanding the Psalms, Derek Kidner's two-volume commentary, small commentary by Tyndale. Actually, I'm not even sure whether it's still um, being published. Joel will be able to tell you. Uh, But it's so helpful. Short, concise, gets to the point of the Psalm. Derek Kidner, pick up that commentary. You don't understand a particular word. What does Sheol mean? Turn to that commentary. Derek Kidner's two-volume commentary on the Psalms. Another resource that I found personally very helpful is Tim and Kathy Keller's one-year devotion on the Psalms. Now what they do is they take a Psalm or a portion of the Psalm, they explain it very briefly so you understand it, and then they turn it into a prayer for you. So if you've not been doing your devotions, pick that up and start today. Take the Psalms and make it a part of who you are. That is how we're able to remember and revise and know God in the midst of the darkness of our lives. Take the Psalms and imbibe it. Do what Jonah did. Remember the Lord in your hour of need. Finally, he recognizes, he agonizes, he revises. And finally, he eulogizes. Now, first, to eulogize is to praise very highly. And I checked it out. You do this not just at funerals. You do this whenever. When you praise something very highly. So all of that struggle that Jonah goes through, all of that agony, it culminates in praise and a shout of victory all while he's in the belly of the fish. Look at verse 8. Jonah says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Friends, what had happened to the pagan sailors in Jonah chapter 1 was now happening to the prophet Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, we saw that they were turning from worshipping idols, from worshipping their gods, look at verse 16 in Jonah chapter 1, to fearing the Lord, worshipping the Lord, and making vows to follow the Lord. They had turned from idols to the true and living God. And now here, in the belly of the fish, this was happening to Jonah too. What great irony. This great religious prophet comes to recognize and see that he is guilty of idolatry. That he needs to turn from his idols to the true and living God. You see, an idol, friends, is anything in your life that is more important than God. And religious people, Christians, are also very capable of idolatry. There can be something in your life that's more important to you than God. What was it for Jonah? God had spoken to him very clearly. Go to Nineveh. This is the word of the Lord. God had encountered him. 
And yet he ran the other way. There was something in his heart and in his life that he was bowing down to. Maybe not physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Something in his life that he was bowing down to that was not God. It was idolatry. Could it have been his religious and cultural pedigree? I'm a Jew. I take great pride in being a Jew. How can you ask me to go to the dirty Ninevites? Perhaps it was his religious and cultural pedigree. Do you take pride in that, friends? I'm a Methodist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm an Anglican. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a free church. We take pride in that. And it becomes an idol. Because when God speaks clearly, we ignore it. And we go back to staking our significance and our hope in something that isn't God. Maybe it was a sense of social justice and judgment. Surely these people should not receive the grace and mercy of God. Because says you, you don't deserve the grace and mercy of God either. So what is it to you, friend? If I want to show them grace and mercy, yes, I will proclaim judgment. And if they do not turn, they will receive that judgment. But that applies to you too, Christian. That applies to you too. Friends, are there groups of people in your life that you still think are beyond the pale of God's grace and God's mercy? They sit on the opposite of the political divide. They sit on the opposite of your cultural divide. Those can be idols in our lives. And Jonah, in the belly of the fish, was recognizing those things. He was seeing them for what they were. Idols that turned him away from the steadfast love of Almighty God. That word steadfast love there refers to the covenant love of God. The special love that God has for his covenant people. In other words, what's happening here, friends, is that Jonah is repenting. He's turning from idolatry and he's turning to Almighty God. He's turning away from hate and he's turning back to the steadfast love of his God. And here he is now, turning not just his words, but his heart to the true and living God. Look at verse 9. It says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Do you notice how this language is so similar to Jonah chapter 116 and what happened to the pagan sailors? Now, Jonah says, I will thank you. Now, Jonah says, I will worship you. Now, Jonah says, I will make vows to commit myself to you, my God and my King. And his prayer ends with a great shout. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the only one who can save, he's saying. And he saves sinners like me by his free and unmerited favor he saves us, not because we deserve it, but because we do not deserve it. He sends His grace and His grace alone. And then verse 10, God spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He was alive and back on track 
in the mission and will of God. But I want you to take notice, friends. That this eulogizing and this final shout of praise, where did it happen? Was it on the dry land after he'd been delivered? Or before? It was before. It was still while he was in the belly of the fish. It was still while he was in the midst of darkness. It was still while he was grappling with his pain and his difficulty. But he was so sure that he would experience the deliverance of the Lord, that he could praise God in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that darkness. Why is that, friends? Well, friends, this is the life of faith. Hugh Martin, once again, 19th century Scottish minister, he says this, this is illustrious, an illustrious instance of the conflict between sense and faith. Sense prompting to despair and faith pleading for hope and procuring victory. When he says sense, what he means is what you see and what you feel. When he talks about faith, it's what we trust in. And he says this is an instant where there is a conflict between what you know and what you see and what you believe and what you trust in. What you sense is despair. But faith and the goodness and grace and the mercy of God, he Martin says, pleads for hope and procures a victory. So friends, you may still be in the belly of the fish for some time in your pain and in your suffering. God does not promise a quick deliverance and a quick victory. But even if you're there, right there in the belly of the fish, even in your agony, there is a cry of faith that can rise up within you to plead for hope and to procure victory just as Jonah did. Because he knows the character of his God. He can trust the character of his God. And Jonah was vomited out on the dry land. And you, my friend, and me, we will be vindicated. And we can be saved like the psalmist in Psalm 27, verse 13. I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You can eulogize, friends. You can praise God in pain and in suffering. If you know your God and you know his grace and his mercy. So friends, in your hour of despair, do what Jonah did. Recognize, agonize, and revise. But more than that, friends, in your hour of despair, know that you can only eulogize because there is a true and better Jonah. And he did something that the original Jonah couldn't do for you. You see, friends, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And this is akin to the Son of Man, Jesus, being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, friends, Jesus, the true and better Jonah, he was the only one who truly recognized God for who he was and what he did. We all fail to do that. And Jesus was the one who agonized in the garden of Gethsemane, not for his sins, but for the sins of the world. 
And Jesus came in his life and his death and his resurrection to remind us that everything in all of scripture points to salvation and grace. He is a true and better lamb. He is a true and better temple. He is the one that dies in the place of his people. There is no temple today because friends, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who sacrificed at the temple, showing us that our sins can be laid on another, that he dies for us so we might live. And friends, Jonah nearly died, but Jesus really died for you and for me. And when we see that, we can cry out with Jonah, even in pain and even in suffering, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we pray today that you bring your children home. We pray today that those who are unbelieving among us would be touched in their hearts by the truth and the reality, even in the middle of their pain. God has given us not just the holy temple, but he's given us the perfect temple, Jesus Christ himself, who died on the cross for our sins. So we pray today for those among us who have yet to believe in you, that today they would move in their hearts, they would be moved in their hearts to embrace you by faith. We pray for those who have wandered away from you, Father, those who have named the name of Christ in their lives but have turned to go elsewhere. And we pray today that they would come back to you because you are good and you're merciful. We pray especially for those that have been hurt by the church and those in the church. We pray for those who have experienced deep disappointments in their lives. And we pray today, Father, that you show them that they can bring this agony and this pain before you. And you listen, you change, you soothe, you comfort, bring them back to you. We pray, Father, for those who are slipping, even among us right now. For those that find no joy in your word and in prayer and among your people. And they might not even know that they're slipping. But we pray today that you would arrest them. That in your mercy, you would even send the waves and the billows into their lives. That they may be awakened to the reality of their sinfulness and their separation from you. And be brought back into the arms of grace. Father, we pray for our the process that we're going through right now to appoint willing elders. And as we prepare to announce the first group of candidates, we pray, Father, for a unity of spirit among us. We pray against factionalism and suspicion and slander among us. We pray, Father, rather for grace, thinking the best of one another. We pray for honesty and openness in our interactions with one another, especially in this very delicate time. And finally, Father, we lift up to you the COVID-19 situation. We hear of another four community cases. And we pray, Father, that you would give these four all that they need to get well that, Father, you would help us to, in this society, to be able to contain those cases so that there will not be another flare-up and another cluster. We also read around the world how the number of deaths has crossed 3 million. Father, I pray you teach us to grieve with those who grieve. Father, I pray that you teach us to give ourselves 
to the benefit of others. And Father, as we gather now around your table, remind us again of how we have been saved by grace through faith. And may that be a soothing balm to our suffering souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.